used to wish I could sing, now I wish you could. But in this case, I wish I could, and I still wish I could. I really appreciate uh, the special music, as always. It's nice to have the violins in there to join the piano and the, the vocals as well. It's a very wonderful sound. We have people that can play fiddles, now we got people that can play violins, too. I guess we're coming up in the world, huh? I sat down and I thought, what did I say? I said something about the end of the feast, here at the end of the feast. How did that happen? I know we talked about it before we came here. It'll be over before you hardly can turn around and know you were there. It'll all be over. And this is the sixth day, tomorrow's the seventh, and the last great day. That's it. So, And we're partway through this one already. I guess we'll have to work double time to enjoy this last part. Well, we finished Isaiah 15 yesterday. I want to back up one thought here, back up for one thought before we move on. And that is go back to verse 32 of chapter 14. It's talking about all the difficulties that are coming and how the Assyrian is going to be broken in the land. It makes a statement in verse 32. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? What about those who come to tell you what's going on. Well, here's the message, that the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. I believe I read that statement, but I don't think that I uh, had ended that which my margin says. It says, The Eternal has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall betake themselves to it. I think that's a very interesting thing that the Hebrew actually says there. Because in light of Haggai, where God says he will stir the people to come and build the temple, God is going to found Zion, which is another word or code word for the church, and perhaps a place as well, and God's people will take themselves there. There's a point at which they will recognize where they need to go, and they will go there. And it is interesting how much or how often in these passages... A statement along those lines is brought up. Now, we've already covered several of them. Uh, chapter 12, verse 6. Cry out and shout, you inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of you. We read that one. Uh, I'll pick out a couple more. Let's see, here's one in chapter 10, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the eternal God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. So, this is brought up over and over again. I'm not going to pick some more out. I didn't, uh, that wasn't my intent. But from chapter 14, verse 32 on, we're going to see that this is mentioned again and again in some form or another. That no matter what is going on in the world, God has preserved for himself a people that he will look after. And we understand that if we are the faithful of his people, or part of the faithful of his people. There will be thousands. I don't think that there will be tens of thousands, probably thousands. I don't know how many God has in his ledger book of life written at this point, and how many more names he needs to add, but he does talk about showing mercy on thousands. 
in the Ten Commandments, as well as uh, somewhere in here in Isaiah, I think. That statement is made more than once in Scripture. Anyway, he's beginning here a series of burdens or messages against several different entities, different countries, different peoples. And I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on these, or at least I don't think I am. I, I want to get on through, and it is not to minimize at all what is being said here, because these are very important messages that have to be taken to those peoples. They don't necessarily affect you and me to a great degree, except as we interact with this world who will be allied against us, and I guess that's a, that will be pretty strong, because ultimately when all worship the beast, and only those few who continue to serve God, we will be arrayed against them, and that will be the only real battle is between God's church and the rest of the world. But he addresses first Moab, and Moab, of course, is or are the descendants of Esau. Now you remember the story back in Genesis where Esau and Jacob had the fight. Jacob stole the birthright from Esau, and Esau would be angry about that forevermore. Could not repent of his attitude toward Jacob, because once he realized how little he had paid for what he had given, he became bitter. And those who have come from Esau ever since have retained that attitude of hatred and bitterness against Jacob. That's one of the reasons we have the attitudes in the Middle East toward America today that we have. It's not just something recent. It goes back all the way to Jacob and Esau. Genesis 27, I may have said 49 the other day, I meant Genesis 27. Uh, during the blessing that was left over for Esau, it was mentioned that Esau would be under the yoke or the burden of Jacob throughout the rest of history or through the future up until the very end time. And then they would break the yoke of Jacob off their neck and that they would have an ascendancy over Jacob. Now that is why, along with Psalm 83 and other places, I feel very much that the Arabic worlds and the Islamic community are going to be involved in the confederacy or the conspiracy against Israel here at the end, and they will be part of that rising over. I think we've, it's been pretty well documented that the financial uh, strings in the world are being pulled by bankers in Europe and by bankers here in conjunction with those bankers in Europe and that the Rothschilds, which means red badge, and Esau was a red man, uh, that is a symbol of Esau, Rothschild, or red shield, red badge. Well, they're very much involved in the destruction of Jacob at the end, and do for a short time have ascendancy over us, because they are part of the conspiracy that destroys America, Britain, and the rest of Israel. The book of Obadiah goes into that in detail, which you've heard that tape in the Iron Prophet series. So I'm not going to, re to review all of that here, but this is additional information 
in chapter 15 and 16 about Moab. And there's some interesting things here in terms of God's outcasts, God's fugitives, those who are turning to God and running from the rest of the world and the danger that is in it. We'll get to that. The burden of Moab, or Esau, Edom, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. Because in the night Kir of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. So all the rattling and noise and warfare and uh, banking and various things of those who say they are Jews but are not will be brought to silence. There are those who say they are spiritual Jews, in Revelation 3, who are not. And there are those who claim to be Jews, who are truly Moabites, or Edomites, or of the blood of Esau. A lot of print and a lot of verbiage has been extended about those Jewish bankers. And in in many cases, they are not Jews at all. The Edomites, posing as Jews, they've taken Jewish names, but they are Edomites. So don't always think it's just the Jews when people bring that up. Sometimes it's those who pose as Jews, and they're not at all. He has gone up to Bajith and to Dibon, the high places to weep. Moab shall howl over Nebo. Nebo is in uh, the country we would now call Jordan, across the, the river. Uh, Mount Nebo stands up pretty high there in the land of Jordan. It's in the Jordan Rift Mountains that go on down to Petra from Galilee and, and down along there. That we recognize as the center of Edom today. Ammon and Jordan uh, and these place names fit that quite well. Although just like Israel, Edom or Esau is also scattered into other areas. And they are within Israel and among Israel, scattered through Israel and behind the scenes. Whether they know who they are or not, and I believe that some of them do, but some of them may not even know who they are, but it is in their blood all the way back from Esau to still have that bitterness and that hatred for Jacob. But they're going to be laid waste. I think it is interesting that just east of us out here, a little bit north and east, lies the town of Moab in Utah. And it is the only place on earth named Moab. And if you start looking at the Mormon peoples that are in the state of Utah, there's a place called Utah in Joshua, where they were settling the land, and there's no J or it's silent in Hebrew, and it is Utah. Uh, they thought they got this from the Indians. I wonder where they really did get the name for Utah, and why is Moab in the middle of it, and why is it out here in the desert? Maybe there are some Moabites, some Edomites among the Mormons, and they may not even realize who they are, but there are a lot of people, if you'll notice, uh, in Utah who are either redheaded are blonde-headed. And that came, yes, through David's line, because he perhaps was ruddy, but uh, Esau was named Red. And there are a lot of red-headed and blonde-headed people here. It makes me wonder, just a question. 
uh, if we might not have some Edomites among us. And we'll see that the plot thickens a little as we go on in this chapter. Anyway, Edom is going to be cut off. Verse 3, in their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth, that's for mourning, poverty, on the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly. And Heshbon shall cry, uh, and Eliela, their voice shall be heard even as Jahaz, therefore the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out, his life shall be grievous to him. So he mentions name places that were in that area at the time, but just as sometimes we see names for Israelite towns and cities, when the prophecy were written, we can re- we can move that to say the cities of Israel today, because Israel has moved. Now it had to be written about the villages that were there then, and that's one of the tricky things in prophecy. That it may not be talking about Ashkelon in particular; it may be talking about Malatzi, a village on the coast of Israel. So we need to transfer it to where Israel is today and realize that the prophecy is against Israel wherever they may be and that the cities may have changed. In fact, some of those cities don't amount to much anymore along the coasts of modern-day Israel, but we have some fine coastal cities around America and England and other places in Israel today, and that's where Israelites are, so that prophecy extends to cover where Israel is today, and it extends to where Edom and Esau are today. (coughs) Now, Isaiah is sad about all this. (coughs) There are relatives, and there is a scripture that says not to despise the Edomite. We need to be careful about our attitude. Just because they're our enemies doesn't mean we should despise them. Aren't we told, love your enemies and those who persecute you? So Isaiah says, My heart shall cry out for Moab, his fugitives shall flee to Zoar. Zoar was a little town. Remember, that's where Lot wanted to flee to. He thought maybe he would be protected there. And then when he saw Sodom and Gomorrah go up in fire and brimstone, he left Zoar and headed for the hills immediately, because he thought maybe Zoar is next. Anyway, there will be a cry of destruction in the verse 5. Verse 6, For the waters of Nimrim shall be desolate, for the hay is withered away, the grass fails, there is no green thing. So a time of famine and desolation on Edom. Therefore the abundance they have gotten, and that which they have laid up, shall they carry away to the brook of the willows. So that which the Edomites have laid up in store will be carried away. I think it is quite interesting that the Mormons have, as part of their religion, each family has to have three years of food laid up. I don't know of another religion that does that. I don't know of a country of people that does that. I don't think that probably the nation of Jordan does that. At least if they have, I've never heard of it. But we do have here a religion of people, perhaps a race of people, who do that. Will at some point God's people have or be given or take what has been stored up? I don't know. It's a question mark. Just sort of mark that verse and we'll see what happens. We're not going to go steal anything. We're not supposed to do that either, so... 
and we're not supposed to covet or lust after something someone else has. This is just a statement of fact in the prophecy. It says they'll be carried away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone round about the borders of Moab, the howling thereof to Egliam, and the howling thereof to Berelam, for the waters of Demon shall be full of blood, so total destruction of Edom, and God shows in Obadiah that Edom will be essentially totally destroyed at some point. Now it gets interesting again in chapter 16. Send you the lamb to the ruler of the land. Now the subject hasn't changed. We're still talking here about Edom. Or Moab. <laughs> Send you the lamb to the ruler of the land from the rock to the wilderness to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now there's the same language we have been seeing in previous chapters and we'll see in more as we go on. So the church, the mountain of Zion, is prominent in here again. And there's some instruction even in the middle of the destruction of Moab about them. For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Arnon means joy or happiness. Uh, so the Moabites will come to the fords or the crossing of happiness the crossing of joy. Now who at this point, when it speaks of the daughter or the mount of the daughter of Zion, will be singing and laughing and full of joy and happiness at their deliverance? And will the Moab, Moabite come to the crossings of joy? The fords of Arnon. It also means, or was, a rushing stream in Canaan. We have the Canaan Mountains just north of us. I think that's quite interesting as well. Verse 3. Take counsel. Execute judgment. Make your shadow as the night in the midst of noonday. He's going to give some instruction here to the Moabites, and he may be referring to those who would go to the mount in the wilderness of the daughter of Zion to be careful. Take counsel, execute judgment, make uh, your shadow as the night in the midst of noonday, go very quietly, hide the outcast, betray not him that wanders. Now, it's not talking about the wandering Moabites here, it's talking about God's people wandering, because the next verse explains that. Let my outcast dwell with you, Moab, be you a covert to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end. The spoiler ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. So we're going to have oppression in our land. And we will be protected and preserved if we're meek and humble and accounted worthy. But Moab is told to protect his people. Now if you want to consider Moab and Ammon as uh, that country of Jordan today... Uh, Petra is within that land, and we have felt that that might have covered there. But that may not be the only place the Moabites are, and there may be another place that God will protect his people as well. Maybe both. Maybe only one. I don't know for sure. We'll wait and see, won't we? But at some point, maybe, it will be time to send 
a leader to the, to the ruler of the land, from the rocks to the mountain of the daughter of Zion, and to go quietly, surreptitiously, carefully, and covertly, because maybe it'll be time to ask for help. Maybe it'll be time to invoke this verse. God says you are to protect and help his people. I don't know. Uh, but it certainly seems to fit in in some form or fashion. This is a very interesting passage here. Remember Nehemiah when he was going to build the wall of Jerusalem? went out in the night with only a few close advisors on horses and surveyed what needed to be done because he did not want to be seen doing that by the enemies that were around. And some of them at that time were Moabites and Edomites as well. So what we do, when we do it, we need to do carefully and quietly. I don't know what that is or when or how or who, but uh, it's a very interesting passage. Verse 5, And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David. So it's still talking about God's people here. In the middle of a burden against Moab, there is deliverance by God's people and leadership given to God's people, as in the tabernacle of David. Judging and seeking judgment and hasting, pushing uh, righteousness in a hurry to become righteous. Well, when he tells us in Isaiah 50, 51, 52 to wake up, wake up, wake up and put on your holy garments, uh, that means wake up and get dressed fast is what that means. So we should be now, I believe, working very hard and very quickly at getting dressed in righteousness. And this would seem to indicate that as well. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. His pride, his vanity, his bragging is going to turn to nothing. Now, it doesn't mean he won't have ascendancy over Jacob for a while, because that is promised. But will he have ascendancy over those people who are faithful? No. In fact, he's commanded not to destroy them, but to protect and help them, to help God's outcasts. Let my outcasts dwell with you, Moab. And it appears that whatever they have laid up, whoever this is talking about, will be made available to God's people, taken to the brook of the willows. Verse 7, Therefore shall Moab howl for Moab. Everyone shall howl. Uh, when, verse 9, I don't know whether this would have some effect on that or not, says, Therefore I will bewail with the, with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibba. I will water you with my tears, O Heshbon, and Eliahle, for the shouting for your summer fruits and for your harvest is fallen could be sometime late summer when the harvest is taken away um, and gladness is taken away and joy out of the plentiful field. So that which had been plentiful before, a land that had produced, the crop is going to be taken away and no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. 
God shows that prosperity will be taken away. And it's, an, it's a religious thing as well. Notice verse 12. And it shall come to pass, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, place of worship, that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. So whatever religion this is that this is talking about, that the Moabites have, the Edomites, they'll go to pray and not prevail. This is the word that the Eternal has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Eternal has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of an hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be condemned with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. I don't know what the three years means. That's a place to put a question mark and maybe... From some particular point in time, uh, Moab has three years before all of this happens. All right, let's go on to chapter 17. The burden of Damascus, representing Syria and a part of the Arab world. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. Uh, verse 3, the fortress also shall cease from Ephraim. Now remember we read back in chapter 7 and 8 and through that section that Ephraim had made a compact with Syria against Judah. So here, where Damascus is taken down, Ephraim is also included. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Eternal of hosts. Verse 4, And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. So this is a burden against Damascus and Syria, but at the same time, he's saying the timing is such that it's also the time when Israel, or Jacob, will be also diminished. Now, does the Arab world go down in dust or up in smoke? At about the same time, America is destroyed. Is the beast going to turn on us and perhaps turn on them as well? I don't know. Just There are questions here that will be answered in the future. But certainly, the time when Damascus or Syria is in trouble, so is Israel. And it shall be as when the harvest man, in verse 5, gathers the corn and reaps the ears with his arm, and it shall be as he that gathers ears in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it, as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the upper, uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, says the eternal God of Israel. It's not talking about Damascus here, it's talking about Jacob, it's talking about Israel. And like a, an olive tree that has already been harvested, there will be a few here and a few there, and if you shake the tree, you might get all of them off. But Israel won't have much of a crop left, in other words. Yet as the gleaning, or yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it, as the shaking of an olive tree. So the, the harvest has come, the grapes have been cut, just that which gleaners might come and get is all that's going to be left of Israel. At that day, verse 7, shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. That's the whole point of all these prophecies, is that mankind at some point begin to say, Man, I'm tired of being around. I'm tired of what I've had. I wonder if there really is a God up there. Will suddenly begin to be the attitude. 
and he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the image. He won't find answers in the religions. He won't find the answers in the things that he has made. The only answer will be in the God who made us, not in us who made gods. In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken vow and an uppermost branch which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. Because, now here's the reason for all this, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your strength, therefore shall you plant pleasant plants and shall set it with strange slips. In the day you shall make your plant to grow, and in the morning shall you make your seed to flourish. Now, the thread of the church, I think, becomes apparent here. Now, this is national destruction, but it also, I think, shows the destruction that is occurring within the church. Now, aren't there a lot of organizations that are out there now thinking, well, if we plant here and we plant there, this surely will be wonderful. And we'll have a wonderful crop, and we'll spread the gospel around the world as a witness. Aren't we putting out lots of booklets and broadcasts? Isn't they, aren't things going very well? Surely we will have a wonderful harvest. That's what this is describing. But what does it say? Middle of verse 11. But the harvest shall be a heap, and the day of grief, and of desperate sorrow. So, you think you're planning to produce something, but God says it's not going to produce. Now, we're building houses in America on the physical level, and, you know, we're adding jobs at McDonald's and uh, all these things that we're doing today to prosper. <laughs> I speak tongue-in-cheek somewhat there. Our jobs are quickly disappearing to China and India and other places, and people quit McDonald's and go to Burger King, but those that are hired by McDonald's are new hires, new jobs according to government statisticians. So that which we planted here is going to turn into a little pile, a little heap that doesn't amount to much. And what the churches are doing are going to do the same thing. Woe to the multitude. Well, it says here, you're finally going to begin to look to God instead of the altars, the organizations, the churches, the broadcasts that you have built. So this is both spiritual and physical. Woe to the multitude of many people, verse 11, which make a noise like the noise of the seas and the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them and they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. You'll see tumbleweeds blowing in a whirlwind. We see them quite frequently on our place. And behold, at evening tide, trouble. And before the morning, he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. So God says, Jacob's going to die or be wiped out, basically. And then the nations that did it will be wiped out as well. Is there some conspiracy at the end between Syria or some Arabic nations and Ephraim. And then that is torn down. 
and God will make sure that neither nation prospers as a result of the conspiracy against Israel. Chapter 18. Woe to the land shadowing of wings which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia that send ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, Go, you swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hereto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. All you inhabitants of the world, he addresses a broader range here, and dwellers on the earth, see ye when he lifts up an ensign on the mountains, and when he blows a trumpet, hear you. Now, haven't we read that God is going to raise up an ensign there in the end of Haggai 2 against the nations? And we read about it earlier here yesterday in the book of Isaiah. God is going to lift a trumpet or a voice as an ensign from the mountains or on the mountains to tell the world to listen. And the world will not listen. These themes keep being repeated over and over through these prophecies of how God is going to begin to sound a warning. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest, and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs, and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. So the harvest time is getting near. Isaiah is going to sit back and watch this thing happen. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks, and take away and cut down the branches. They shall be left together under the fowls of the mountains to the beasts of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. So the world is looking forward to a wonderful harvest under what? A new world order in which everyone will have peace, prosperity, and plenty. And God says, Isaiah, sit back and watch. I'm going to cut it off when the grape is still sour. Ever eat a sour grape before it was ripe? That's when God is going to cut them off. They're never going to quite get this done. Verse 7, In that time shall the present be brought to the eternal hosts of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hereto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot. So they're going to present God, All right, here, God, it's a people that you have destroyed and sent famine on, and and uh, made nothing of, whose land the rivers have spoiled to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. God is going to be dwelling with his people in Zion, and news of destruction from around the world is going to be brought. Keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? Very interesting. Then we have in chapter 19, the burden of Egypt. Behold, eternal rides upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. I will let them destroy each other. And verse 3, the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. Now he goes on and on about Egypt, and I don't think that I want to read this whole chapter you can read it at your leisure, but it's basically speaking of the destruction of Egypt. Now, what does the little land of Egypt mean in the greater political world today? Not much. Third, fourth rate nation. Uh, yes, it'll be destroyed. It's part of those who will be against Israel. 
But I think we could look at a little broader view, too, and say that Egypt represents sin, symbolic of sin. Now, what is God bent on wiping out in the world? Sin. He wants people to learn to look to him and live according to his way. So Egypt is symbolic of sin and has been ever since the Red Sea on. So not only will Egypt as a country be wiped out, but this is going to be a worldwide thing, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 24, and sin itself is going to be wiped out. And when that is done, there will be a very, very different worldview. Notice toward the end of this. Verse 19, And that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. Egypt, at some point, is going to begin to repent. The world is going to begin to repent of sin. And there will be an altar to God in the midst of the sin that has enveloped the world to that point. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness to the eternal of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they shall cry to the eternal because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. God is going to wind up delivering the Egyptians from sin, from themselves. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. So even though God is going to come down on them very hard, like he is the rest of the world, there will come a time when they repent. This is looking forward to the millennium, I'm sure. Verse 22, the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. He has to smite it and chasten it in order for them to begin to look to God so that they can be healed. And that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians, and that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Can you imagine that? That the Arabs and the Israelites and the Assyrians would all be called one-third, 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 the people of God. Do you think this worldwide destruction and desolation and famine and killing and murder and everything, the absolute chaos at the end of the age, is going to have an effect? Talk about an effect. These people are going to repent. They're going to turn to Almighty God. This is what it's going to take to bring peace to the earth. Anytime you see a couple of people who are arguing, or more people than that that are arguing and fighting among themselves, there's most generally vanity, ego, self-centeredness involved. And that is what this world has. Pride, vanity, ego. Proud to be this, proud to be that, proud of you, proud of my children, proud of my wife, proud of my husband, proud of my name, proud of... We're proud. Proud of my car. Proud of my house. We're just a proud people. God likes 
meekness, humility, kindness, gentleness, and love. That's what he wants us to have. But before you can do that, you have to somehow knock people flat and get meekness and humility. The absence of pride and vanity produces humility and meekness. Then people can get along. They'll make allowance for each other. They'll help each other. They'll strengthen each other. They won't fight with one another about who is the smartest, the best, the richest, the finest, the wisest, the skinniest, or whatever. We'll get over that. And live in peace. Wonderful vision of the millennium is what the end of chapter 19 is. All right, let's go to chapter 20. In the year that Tartan came with Ashdod, that's a town along the coast of Israel, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spoke the eternal by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off your loins and put off your shoe from your foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Prophets of God went through a lot at the hands of those who would stone them, <laughs> and they also went through a lot at the hand of God who would use them. Remember Ezekiel laying on one side 390 days and then having to turn over and lay 40 days on the other side for Judah. And at first God was going to make him bake his food with his own dung and then poor Ezekiel said, please, why not cow's dung? God said, well, all right. Just use cow's dung then. And here he tells Isaiah to strip off and go naked for three years. For a sign and wonder upon Egypt and on Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. So Isaiah was to be a type of the Assyrian taking the Egyptians and Ethiopians captive and walking naked to Assyria. They shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitants of this isle, or this coast, shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? They won't. They just won't. God sent Isaiah to walk around like that. It was a sign from God that they would not escape. Now here's the burden in chapter 21 of the desert of the sea. The sea in Revelation and other places is indicated to be peoples. The burden of the desert of the seas or the peoples. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the spoiler spoils. Go up, O Elam. Besieged, O Media, all the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Now, the Medes and Persians and those north of, uh, of the land of Turkey today and the mountains that are there, that was the land of Elam, and the Medes and the Persians came from that direction to destroy Assyria uh, anciently. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pains have taken hold upon me as the pains of a woman that travails or is in birth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart pants. Fearfulness affrighted me. 
The night of my pleasure is eternal into fear. The world has gone living in pleasure and its own desires, and suddenly it's going to be turned into great fear. Fear of the peoples around the world. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, you princes, and anoint the shields. God says, get ready to fight, because I am coming against you. For thus has the Eternal said to me, to Isaiah in this case, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. He says, let's have somebody watching what's going on in the world, okay? And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses, and a chariot of camels. And he hearkened diligently with much heed. And he cried, A lion! My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. And behold, here comes a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So this ties these prophecies in with the prophecies at the end of the book of Revelation. Chapter 18.4, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So these are end-time prophecies, no doubt. And all the graven images of her gods he has broken to the ground. O my threshing in the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared to you. The burden of Duma, he calls to me out of Seir, that's in uh, a son of Ishmael. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire you, return, and come. The burden upon Arabia. So he brings this down to Ishmael, whose sons uh, were the sons of Hagar, or, or he came from Hagar. The Arabians, the Arabs today. In the forest in Arabia shall you lodge, O you traveling companies of Didanum. That's, uh, Didanum was from Abraham through Keturah. So Ishmael is going to cause problems against those of Abraham's seed. The inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. Tema was one of Ishmael's sons as well. They gave him their bread, or their bread to him that fled. Now that's interesting in the light of what we read in chapter 15 about how provisions would be made for God's outcasts from Moab. And here, sons of Ishmael are giving sons of Abraham something good. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. For thus has the Eternal said to me, Within a year, according to the years of an hireling, and all the glory of Kadar shall fail. Uh, Kadar, again, was a son of Ishmael, of the Arabs. So, we talked about three years, and there will be failure. Now this is, I guess, moving forward, and within a year will be the failure of the Arabs. And the residue of the numbers of archers, the mighty men of the children of Ishmael, or Kadar, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. I realize this isn't the scintillating, titillating section here, but I think it's necessary God thought it was necessary to put it all in here for us to show how the various nations would come down. It's talking about the Arabs here. Now it turns back to Jerusalem, chapter 22. The burden of the valley of vision. As you go down, you'll see that it's a spoiling of the daughter of God's people. 
in verse uh, 3 or 4. The burden of the valley of vision, I, I wondered about that one, but uh, the commentaries will tell you, or the dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, that Jerusalem has hills about it, and it does, and it's looked upon sort of as a valley between the hills. You've got Mount Zion, you've got the Mount of Olives, and so on, and it's kind of in a little area that's lower. So it was sometimes referred to as a, a valley, Jeremiah 23, or 21, 13 refers to it that way. So this is against Jerusalem again, the capital of Judah. The burden of the valley of vision, what ails you now that you are wholly gone up to the housetops? Though you are full of spurs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, your slain men are not slain with the sword and are dead in battle. But what was happening was they were about to be besieged. And they'd gone up on their houses to look around and see where is it coming from? Is it here yet? Uh, they were being watchful, in other words. They knew trouble was coming. He says, what are, you, what are you concerned about? You're not dead yet, are you? You haven't been attacked yet. Verse 3, all your rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in you are bound together, which have fled from far. They ran off in groups and packs, I guess. Therefore said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me, because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. Isaiah said, I can't even look at this. I've got to cry about it. Leave me alone so you don't see my tears. And Isaiah was a very tender man. He was afraid and concerned about the destruction of Moab, and now he's very concerned and crying tears because of the destruction that was about to come upon Jerusalem. Do we not feel that way? about the destruction that's coming upon spiritual Judah today and that which is about to come upon Judah and Israel on a physical level. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and crying to the mountains. And Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen in tear and covered the shield. So Gentiles coming against Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass that the choicest valley shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And he discovered the covering of Judah, and you did look in that day to, to the armor of the house of the forest. So that which had protected Judah is stripped away. It's just kind of like to take all your clothes off and reveal what you really are. You've seen also the breaches of the city of David. Now he's going to get on those who are in the church or in Judah for a particular reason here. Let's see it. Let's see what they did and then see what God's conclusion is. You have seen also the breaches of the city of David. In other words, you've seen the holes in the wall in Jerusalem. You've seen the weaknesses. And we're talking, it talks about us being the healers of the breaches, doesn't it, there in Isaiah 58, if we do what's right. So the breaches that are in physical Israel and Judah and the breaches are in, are in the church are the same. We still see those two threads coming through here. You've seen the holes in the walls, and there are many, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You gathered up all the water to try to be sure they had enough water for the trouble that is to come. And you have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have you broken down to fortify the wall. Didn't David get in trouble for numbering Israel in terms of war? 
not wrong, I guess, to have a census to know how many people there are, but if you're doing it for the purpose of knowing how many fighting men there are so you can go to war, that's a different deal. And God had wanted David to look to him as the protector, not to number the people to go to war. You made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you have not looked to the baker thereof, neither had respect to him that fashioned it long ago. But with your busy stirring around, trying to defend yourself and to get water for yourself, and you're forgetting God. That's a true danger. And in that day, did the eternal God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. And when we see danger coming, do we take care of ourselves? Or do we begin to truly look to God for his help? Now God, when, he, when we see impending danger coming, would have us do what? What would God have you do if you saw trouble coming? That day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, to mourning, to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. In other words, seek God. Say, here we are in sackcloth and ashes repenting. That's what sackcloth is a representative of. Humility, meekness, and repentance. But instead, where he says, and behold, I called for this, but what did I see? I saw joy and gladness, slaying of oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, and an attitude of, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. What difference does it make? We're all going to die anyway, let's party on. That's not the attitude God wants to see when we see destruction impending. We see destruction in the church today, and God doesn't want to see us in an attitude of partying and slaying oxen and having steaks all the time and let's drink wine and eat steaks and have a good time. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for repentance and sackcloth and ashes is what he's looking for. That's the attitude God's church should be in today. That doesn't mean we can't have steak and wine occasionally. But our overall attitude had certainly better be the other way. And if we find ourselves partying too much, then maybe we're getting in a wrong attitude. These are grim times. We need to be paying more attention to prayer and study and fasting and self-examination and meditation on the ways of God than we do in party. Let's be sure we keep things in balance because we are entering a very dangerous time in the world and in the church. We're already in a dangerous time in the church where thousands are losing contact with God and dying and falling away spiritually. Very dangerous time. It can happen to us if we don't pay attention to what God wants done. Let's be sure we look to him for protection and guidance and leading because he's the only one that can save us out of this. And he is the one that counts us worthy to escape all this that is coming. Be sure our attention is on him. 
And it was revealed in my ears by the Eternal of hosts. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, says the Eternal God of hosts. The attitude within the church is not going to change. People will not seek God with their whole hearts until they are virtually all spiritually dead. 90% go into the tribulation. And this nation will not repent of its materiality, its lack of dedication to the true God, for its morals, and everything that is wrong in this nation will not change. The attitude will simply not change until most are dead. It will take that to change the attitude. Verse 15, Thus says the eternal God of hosts, Go, get you to this treasure, even to Shebna. Shebna means grow or growth. <coughs> Shebna was in Hezekiah's house as the treasurer and as the perhaps secretary of the treasury. Uh, very important man in Hezekiah's kingship. We'll get to that in Isaiah 36 and so on through there. But Shebna had a problem. He also There was also another man there named Eliakim, and Shebna and Eliakim with one other went to talk to the uh, servants of the king of Assyria who came to them to make a deal. Uh, and we'll get to that, so I won't go into it more here. But Shebna had a problem. Uh, even though he was a renowned leader in Hezekiah's reign, he had a problem. So God says to Isaiah, go to Shebna, and say, what have you here? What are you doing? What's going on, Shebna? And whom have you here that you have hewed you out a sepulcher here, as he that hews him out a sepulcher on high, and that graves an habitation for himself in a rock? Shebna had a tremendous ego problem, obviously. Tremendous vanity. He wanted his sepulcher to be hewed out of rock, and he wanted it in a very high place where everyone could look up and say, there is the sepulcher of Shebna. He was a wonderful man. Behold, the Eternal will carry you away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover you. <laughs> cover him with dirt, I guess, instead of being placed in a June sepulcher way up on the mountain so everyone could see God's going to take him into captivity and cover him with dirt. Seems to be the analogy here. He will surely violently turn you and toss you like a ball into a large country or to the choice of your valleys or, or large spaces is what my margin says. There you shall die and there the chariots of your glory shall be the shame of, the, of your Lord's house. I would take from this that at some point there will be one in a high position, perhaps in the church, spiritual Israel, who will be full of vanity and ego and will have to be brought down. And maybe Shebna is a type of the ministry as a whole that will have to be brought down because of vanity, ego, and pride and lifting themselves above the people. A scary thought, but he was in very high in the government. And on a physical level, if you want to look at the other thread, 
Won't those who have themselves in very high places in the government in Washington be knocked down? Because they have not been true, they have not used the treasury properly. They've misused and abused the money of the people. The ministry in the church and the government in Washington have done the same thing, haven't they? <coughs> God will hold them accountable. I always figure it's my job to tithe and their job to use it right. If they didn't use it right, they were at the mercies of God. If I didn't tithe, then I was at the mercies of God. So I felt I needed to do my job and then whoever controlled the purse strings needed to do their job and if they didn't do it right, God would take care of them. And it appears here in this prophecy about Shebna that that is indeed the case. Verse 19, And I'll drive you from your station, and from your state shall he pull you down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I'll call him, and I will clothe him with your robe, and strengthen him with your girdle, and I will commit your government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Eliakim means the God of raising. In other words, Eliakim probably will be used to build something. Shedna misused the money, was lifted up in vanity and ego, and was useless to God. But Eliakim will be given authority. So there's a change of leadership here somehow, whether it be in the physical nation or in the church. Verse 22, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now whether this is a physical leader, who is a type of Christ, and rules righteously, or not, I don't know. That may very well be the case. But ultimately, Eliakim is a type of Christ. Because who is it that opens, and no man shuts, and sets, and no man opens? No man opens. That's God speaking in Revelation 3 to the church of Philadelphia. That this prophecy is brought forward to there. And of course we know Christ is going to rule on the throne of David. So ultimately Eliakim, whoever he may be as a personage in the end time, is going to also be a type of Christ who will rule righteously, and ultimately Christ will take this job of Eliakim. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Now once God's establishes his government, it's going to be like driving a nail into a wall that cannot be removed. It will have no end. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even all the vessels of flagons. So everybody, small and large, will come under the government of Christ at that time. Whether you be a little cup or whether you be a flagon of wine, big or little, important or unimportant, will all be there under Christ. And that day, says the eternal of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. I think that refers back to Shebna, who thought he had a pretty secure position, and it was safe to give himself a big sepulcher way up on the hill. But God says, no, I'm going to replace you with Eliakim, and there will be a sure nail there that will never be removed, but that which went before will be cut down, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken it. 
Well, let's carry on and see if we can get through this section today, or most of it anyway. Chapter 23 is the burden of Tyre. <clears throat> How you ships the Tarshish. So Tyre is representative immediately here of a merchant and trading city. For it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in, from the land of Chittim it is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coast. Now Tyre was situated right on the coast uh, of North Israel, Lebanon, right through that area. <clears throat> you whom the merchants of Zidon that pass over the sea have replenished. So Tyre is a nation that has to do with worldwide trade across the oceans and seas. And by great waters, the seed of Sihor, great seeds, the harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is the market of nations. I have felt that Tyre probably is symbolic of either New York or London, or very possibly both. Both are seated on great rivers, the Thames and the Hudson. Both have access to the seas. Both have been instrumental in great trading cartels around the world. And together they represent the leaders of Ephraim and Manasseh, whoever Ephraim is and Manasseh is. But those two capitals have been the seat of and are today the seat of money. They control pretty much the revenues of the world. <laughs> or at least they have that is quickly being taken away because we're getting so deeply deeply in debt to those bankers who own everything that we have I think most of us understand by now that the um, what's the word I'm looking for Alan Greenspan the central bank the federal reserve <laughs> is a private corporation. It is not owned by the government at all, but it controls all the revenues. It's a totally private corporation. It was named federal to fool people to thinking that it had something to do with the government, but it doesn't. And the great central banks that were established in Europe and in England were then reestablished over here, and they control the money. Private corporations. They also control the gold. I saw a documentary some months ago about the Federal Reserve, and that big building in New York is filled with gold. It doesn't belong to the U.S. government. It belongs to the Federal Reserve, a private bank. That's where the gold has gone. And the David admitted in that documentary that there is nothing backing the American dollar except confidence. And I would say also the fact that people have to buy oil with dollars right now. So it is becoming a hollow shell, even though London and New York have been uh, those who control the money. That control is fast slipping away and will be taken completely away, as this chapter will show. So whoever Tyre is and represents is the market of the nations. Be you ashamed, O Zidon, for the sea has spoken, even the strength of the sea, saying, I prevail not, nor bring forth children, neither do I uh, nourish up young men, nor bring up virgins, as at the report concerning Egypt, so shall they be sorely pained at the report of Tyre. Pass you over to Tarshish, howl, you inhabitants 
of the seacoast or island. Is this your joyous city, whose antiquity is of ancient days? Her own feet shall carry her afar off to sojourn. So they, they trade and travel around the world, long way away. And they're going to say, is this your joyous city? The Big Apple? <laughs> that which everyone wanted to go to and look to? And London in the same breath. Perhaps both are a picture of Tyre because they're <laughs> Ephraim is Manasseh and Manasseh is Ephraim as we read yesterday. Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are the honorable of the earth? Now this reminds you of the language of Revelation 17 and 18, doesn't it, of the great whore and how she is a trafficker and a merchant and, and has made all the nations rich. The Catholic Church has not done that. I refer you back to the series on Babylon. America and London were the ones that made the world rich. London before America and America in, since the, the tribulation, since the uh, Great Depression. We'll see you 70 years here in a moment. <clears throat> The Eternal of hosts has purposed it to stain the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Who does the whole world look to? They look to us. Pass through your land as a river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. Our strength is going to be diminished, depleted, and destroyed. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Eternal has given a commandment against the merchant city to destroy the strongholds thereof. I think it started with the scraping of the towers off the face of the earth. And it will continue. And he said, You shall no more rejoice, O you oppressed virgin, daughter of Zidon. Arise, pass over to Chittim. There also shall you have no rest. No matter where we look, we're not going to get any peace, comfort, and rest. Behold the land of the Chaldeans, or Babylon. This people was not till the Assyrian founded it for them that dwell in the wilderness. They set up the towers thereof, they raised up the palaces thereof, and he brought it to ruin. Howl, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste, and it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten seventy years, or, as it should read, it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten after seventy years. Not that they will be gotten for 70 years, but that they will be forgotten after 70 years, according to the days of one king. After the end of 70 years, see, shall Tyre sing as an harlot. He says, take a harp, go about the city, you harlot that has been forgotten. Make sweet melody, sing many songs, that you may be remembered. So, the leadership of Tyre is going to be forgotten after about 70 years. And they're going to sing like a harlot on the street. Come to me, come to me. And it shall come to pass after the end of 70 years that the Eternal will visit Tyre. When God says, I will visit you, it doesn't mean uh, with love and kindness and might. It will be with destruction. She shall turn to her hire and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. Now, it almost sounds there at first like 
from that point on she's going to become a great trader. That's not what it's saying. Notice verse 18. And her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to the Lord. Now why would a harlot's merchandise be holy to the Lord? Let's read on. It shall not be treasured nor laid up. What she had will become worthless. For her merchants shall be for them that dwell before the eternal. Or, no, not her merchants. For her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the eternal to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. In other words, Tyre will be destroyed and everything that she had that she thought was so good that she wouldn't give up is going to be given to those who will worship God. So it's an end-time destruction. Now, how long has New York been the premier city of finance in the world? Now, London goes back a long way. But Tyre only goes back approximately, if it's New York, 70 years. When did God begin the end-time church? About 1933-34. When did the American monetary system and American dominance begin? Really not until after the Great Depression. And from there forward, New York began to gain the ascendancy over London and others. And now it's about finished, isn't it? The powers fell. The stock market was shaken. But it hasn't fallen yet. But it's going to. And when New York goes, London will go. The city of London has been known as the financial market behind the scenes of the world. But New York is the one that everyone looks to today. New York is the one that is carrying the banner. You don't think of London too much. It's there, and it's still a part of Israel, is very, very much involved in the monetary practices of the United States. Because the central bankers of the U.S. are tied to the central bankers of Europe and the Rothschilds and those in London. So the whole system is going to go down at once. But New York is kind of that which is out front. New York, New York, we sing about. Or they sing about, or somebody has. I don't. But I think it's quite interesting that God, in Jeremiah 25 and 29 and Zechariah 1, talks about an ascendancy of about 70 years of the church, which would be in the captivity of Babylon all that time, in, in the land of Babylon, affected by Babylon, and after 70 years would be released to get out. And God tells us to go. It says that those people we read this morning will take themselves to Zion. There will come a time when people will realize we have to get out. But the church has about 70 years here at the end time. And now we see after 70 years, the church just about destroyed, don't we? And it will continue to go until nothing basically is left, except the faithful remnant who draw themselves together. 
Now, the other thread is running in time just a little behind that. The destruction of the church is almost accomplished. Now we'll start, very shortly, the destruction of physical Israel, coming right behind. And that this city represents London and New York, or both, after about 70 years, they'll sing like a whore on the street, and no one will pay any attention. Now up till that time, all the merchants of the world have come and bought her wares. And isn't Israel the harlot that is described in Ezekiel 16 and Isaiah 1 and other places? Yes, it is. So if New York is the front man for this world's financial system, it'll be destroyed after about 70 years of ascendancy. I don't think it's ironic that the church began during those depression years and came forward to this time and New York began its ascendancy at that time and is coming to a halt very soon hereafter. <coughs> All right, let's, let's get through 24 then. Uh, because we've been seeing these burdens against different peoples and Israel keeps coming in there and God's people being delivered keeps being woven as a thread through there as well. But now, instead of a burden against specific places, here's one against the whole earth, sort of to sum it up. Behold, the Eternal makes the earth empty, and makes it waste, and turns it upside down, and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. No one is immune this time. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled. Now this comes right after this proclamation about Tyre and how she'll sing as a harlot, but nobody listens anymore. And it's talking about Everything in the system crashing. The lender, the borrower, the banks, those who hire and those who are hired. Everybody. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the eternal has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. Now this, this gets to be pretty descriptive language by the end of this chapter. And it's what Peter quoted about how the earth will be dissolved and so on, and ties in with the new heavens and the new earth in showing that the earth does not go away. Now, Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, after they broke away from the true people of God, used Isaiah 24 to show that the entire earth would be absolutely desolate and no one would be left alive. Her desolate earth theory, she calls it. It's in the book, The Great Controversy. I went through and read it. And she quotes parts of Isaiah 24, but she leaves out key words. Because she wanted to believe, as did the Worldwide Church of God, that it was a time when everything would be destroyed. And we even took it to the point the earth would be completely burned like a charred cinder. But that's not what Isaiah 24 says, as we'll get into it. What it means is the society of man 
the society of Satan will be utterly wiped out. And in doing that, it is required that most people die. There's no other way around it. Verse 5, The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Israel has, and so has all mankind. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. There's still people there, but there's not many, and it's desolate when this is finished. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. I said yesterday, possibly a hundred million is all out of six and a half, seven billion that will remain alive. That's not many out of that many people. The new, the, <coughs> excuse me, the new wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted do sigh, the mirth of Tabrez ceases, the noise of them that rejoice ends, the joy of the heart ceases. So the music, the singing, the MTV, everything's going away. Just won't be anymore. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. Are our cities confusion? <laughs> yes, they are. God hates cities, essentially. He said, Woe to them that build city to city and field to field so that a man has no space. Our cities are a confusion and jangle of noise and traffic and smog and too many people and too many businesses and too much commerce and it's just busy, busy, busy. The city of confusion will be broken down. Satan's way is confusion. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. Everybody's scared. <coughs> Hiding behind doors and windows, those that are left. There's a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. Oh, that we had what we had. They're going to mourn. And the city is left desolation, and the gate is smitten with destruction. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. God's going to go ahead and shake the rest of the fruits and nuts out of the trees. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify you the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the islands of the seas or the coastlines. <clears throat> from the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs even glory to the righteous. But I said, My leanness, my leanness, woe to me! The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yes, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Do we look at commerce today in the world and say, Man, they're charging an arm and a leg and they've got all these middlemen and the price of something is so high it's ridiculous. This little piece of plastic that I put on my car that looks like it ought to be 50 cents is $45. And that's the cheap piece. The knockoff. That's the way it has come, or become. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, inhabitants of the earth. They're going to begin to sing to God at some point, but in the meantime, there's going to be terrible desolation. And it shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. I mean, people are going to be so scared, they're going to run one direction from the noise they heard over here and fall in a hole. And he that comes up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. 
There's no place to go, for the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. God says, in many places, Hebrews, Revelation, Haggai, here, that God is going to shake the earth like a dog would shake a rag. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. Cottage is just a very small thing. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. The society of this earth is going to go down and never again come back. God will not allow it ever again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison and after many days shall they be visited. Now, Peter said something about uh, the demons in prison in quoting from this chapter. So it may very well be that God is saying, when I shut the earth down, I destroy society, Satan is going to be bound a thousand years. So he's talking about all the events here that are going to start from here on and lead to the millennium. God's going to shut it all down and bind Satan and the demons. Now the earth is still going to be here. But God is going to shake it terribly. <clears throat> then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. This whole thing is going to wind up with Christ coming back and ruling from Jerusalem over the whole earth. Meantime, there's an awful lot of trouble to come. Well, I'm out of time, so we'll stop there at the beginning of chapter 25 and pick it up there tomorrow, God willing. <laughs>